You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. I invite you to be seated. One of the most powerful tools in the repertoire of a master storyteller is the hanging ending. A few years ago, a movie called Inception demonstrated this powerfully. In the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio's character uses a special machine that puts him to sleep and enables him to have complete consciousness and control inside the world of his dreams, which turns out to be a pretty cool place to be. He can manipulate things and do all sorts of interesting stuff. And one of these things that he can do is he can get a hold of another one of these machines and go to sleep again within his dream and go down to another level of subconscious or whatever and do it again. And each time you go down a level of sleep, it slows down your experience of time. Perhaps you've experienced a nap that you had a long dream and you only were asleep for like two minutes. Well, once you've gone down a couple levels, you can live a whole lifetime in the course of a real afternoon nap. The trouble that they find is that it becomes difficult to know whether or not you're still asleep, whether you're actually living in the real world or you are actually living in a dream. And so the character uses a special top that he spins. And this top, if he's asleep and dreaming, this top will spin forever. But if he's awake, the top will fall over like a normal real top does, right? And I'm not going to go into how all the story works. But at the end of the movie, it comes to a, a pretty happy ending, a relatively happy ending, and it seems a little too happy. And the movie closes with the main character spinning the top. And you see that the camera focuses right in on it. And you see it spinning, and you see it wobble, but then it keeps spinning, and then the movie ends. Does it fall over or not? Is he really having a happy ending, or is he still asleep? You don't know. The movie's over. And the effect of the hanging ending is, is powerful. It's powerful because it asks you, how do you want this movie to end? Do you want it to be real? You want the top to fall over and he has this happy ending? Or maybe it doesn't turn over and it spins forever because he's decided he'd rather live in a dream than in the real world because that's the only way he could have a happy ending. If you had the choice, the movie is asking you, if you had the choice to live a blissful life that was only a dream that you'd never wake up from, would you turn it down? Does it matter if you're awake or asleep as long as you are happy? Or for that matter, can you really tell whether you are awake or sleeping right now and dreaming about a sermon? <laughs> All these questions flood upon you when, you when the story leaves you hanging. And it, it draws you in and asks you, what about you? What would you do? How do you think this story should end? And Jesus is a master storyteller, and so he knows the power of a hanging ending. In our gospel lesson, he tells a brief parable that harnesses this power. He, he tells about a man who planted a fig tree in a vineyard who comes seeking fruit from it year after year, but he finds none. So he tells his vine dresser, cut it down. It doesn't deserve a spot in my vineyard. But the vine dresser intercedes for the tree and says, tells the owner, wait a bit longer. Let me dig at its roots and throw in some smelly manure. And then if it's born fruit after another year, great. If not, then cut it down. End of story. You don't know, does the tree bear fruit? We don't find out. 
And Jesus has left his original hearers with that same question, what about me? How do I want this story to end? How do I think it will end? And this makes it really powerful because it's kind of a a pretty clear story to an ancient Israelite because the word the vineyard as, as a setting and a story is a pretty stock metaphor for the people of Israel. The prophets use the vineyard over and over as a picture of God's people, Israel. Jeremiah did it. Perhaps most famously and most related to this is Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. And for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So when Jesus tells this story about a particular fig tree in a vineyard, Everyone knows he's talking about particular Israelites, which means maybe he's talking about me. He's talking about Israelites who fail to bear the fruit of faith in God, the justice and righteousness and love that come from knowing God rightly. And the fate of these people, Jesus says, is undecided because the lack of fruit is leading them towards death, towards being cut down and cut out of the vineyard. But there is still time. There's one year, whatever that means. But does the tree get cut down? We don't know. And this forces on the listener that question. What about me? Am I bearing fruit? Do I only have a year left? If there's still time, what am I going to do? Now, last week, we concluded with a pretty somber reflection on the work of the evil one in the church, on the power of sin in the church, because sin really does exist in the church. And sometimes it can simply be, we said, uh, well-meaning Christians who just fall short. Who's, who, who, who fall into sin and hurt you somehow. But it can also be that there are predators seeking out a community of trust with whom they can take advantage of people. And everything in between. And this week, the Spirit is focusing us a little bit more specifically on a kind of sin in the church. That is, people who, re- who follow Jesus with their lips, but not with their lives. Who bend, actually, who hear God's promises and are content to hear them and acknowledge them, but not to actually live as if they're true. This third Sunday in Lent takes us a little bit more deeply into a really powerful and very challenging topic, which is the failure of people within the church community to live as if the gospel's actually true, whose lives don't reflect repentance and that consequent pursuit of justice and mercy and love that comes from knowing Jesus. Paul would put it this way, about the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the self-control. What about Christians in whom that all seems to be absent? How can that be? How can it be that someone knows God and doesn't know those things? How is that even possible? Now, our our texts today give us actually three different ways to see this as being possible, three different ways this might happen. And so we're going to kind of touch on each of them and see what what they are. The first of them is the, the mentality of of victimized entitlement. I'm the victim, therefore I don't have to follow Jesus or do what he says. The Old Testament lesson tells us is is from the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is talking to the exiles, people who have been deeply, deeply wronged by the nation of Babylon. They have been conquered, their temple destroyed, they've been carted off into exile. Now they know, they've been told by their prophets that this was God's judgment on their sin. But that still doesn't change the fact that they deeply resent God for having done this to them. And the people of Babylon for having done this. That they, these wicked people seem to have a mighty empire that will never fall, and yet they're getting away with this. And so people who've suffered at the hands of other people take in themselves a mentality, God has not been fair to me. He has not been just 
Therefore, I don't have to either. We can see this in our world today, the, the, victim, the victimized mentality. Because there are plenty of tragedies. There are plenty of wicked people getting away with being wicked and doing awful things. There are people persecuting Christians and the church. And the temptation for God's people is to look at those people's sin as a justification for our being indifferent or disobedient to Jesus. Jesus calls me to suffer for his name. He calls me blessed when I suffer for his name. But what good is that? That doesn't win me here and now what I want. That doesn't defend my turf. He calls me to forgive my enemies and return curses with blessings. But that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel fair. That doesn't feel just. I need to defend my turf, stick up for myself, and fight for my rights. I don't need to love others when they're being jerks to me. The only way to survive in this world is by meeting strength with strength, lies with lies, violence with violence, and wickedness with wickedness. That's the way the world works. And under that mentality is a refusal to believe that the God whose strength was made perfect in the suffering of his son actually is the future. That the God who, who conquered wickedness and darkness by submitting himself to it and suffering it voluntarily, that he actually wins. And therefore, that when he calls us to take up our cross, he means it. It's born in this conviction that the way of God is not just, I've been wronged, so why should I be just? The other way is perhaps like the Lutheran way, not to be unfair to Lutherans, like I like to be, which is the epistle lesson, 1 Corinthians 10. Paul is being a good rabbi here. He's retelling the story of Israel in the framework of the Christian uh, sacraments, actually. He's talking, but well, let me just read it to you. Well, sorry, the, the second way people can be, fail to bear fruit is because they presume on God's grace. They presume on God's grace. This is what it, Paul says Israel was doing. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, which is a reference to God's presence, the cloud that led them through the wilderness. They were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now, they weren't literally baptized, but it's kind of, they're kind of just like Christians. They were initiated through water and the presence of God, just like Christians. They were God's people. Verse three, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock that followed, followed them, and that rock was Christ. So in other words, what Paul wants his hearers to recognize is the ancient people of Israel were just as connected to Christ as you are. They have the sacraments. They have the promises of God given to them. They're baptized into Moses, and they're fed by Christ, who's a rock somehow. But nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Paul is writing to those Christians in Corinth who are presuming on the grace of God that is given in the sacraments. They took God's gifts and they used them not as sources of a life of righteousness, but as substitutes for it. They were God, pointing back to God's children, Moses, who, who were baptized into Moses, who yet felt free to desire evil things, to worship other gods, to go into sexual immorality, to test God and to grumble. In other words, they lived in ways which said, we don't believe that the God who told us his promises actually tells us how to live. We'll just take his promises, but not his commands. That's presumption on God's grace. And today it looks like this. It looks like when someone says, I'm baptized, so I don't, I don't need to ever show up at worship. I can lead, I can worship the gods of money or play or recreation or work, whatever it might be, because I'm baptized. Or I took communion, so I can go on being angry at that guy over there and not really seek reconciliation with him because we're communing together, right? I've been absolved, so I can ignore God's plan for my marriage and sexuality. Or I've got right doctrine, so I can grumble and complain about everyone I think that's wrong with everyone else in the church. 
or, well, God is love, so he's cool with me doing my thing. Jesus promised me that he'd make me holy, so I'll let him get around to it someday. But the sacraments are not substitutes for holiness. They are sources of holiness. They are not substitutes for walking with Jesus. They are the way we walk with Jesus. God feeds us with the body and blood of his risen son to connect us to the new life that is the resurrection, where our wills are perfectly in line with God's, and we walk in those steps that God prepared before, before for us. He poured his love into our hearts by his spirit so that we would actually show that love to others. He forgave us so that we would forgive other people. He washed us in the waters of baptism, adopting us into his family so that we'd begin to look like his son, Jesus. The sacraments are never substitutes for spiritual fruit. They are the source of that fruit. And anytime we forget this, we presume on God's grace. The last reason we might fail to bear fruit comes from our gospel lesson, and it's self-righteousness. That is, we look at those guys over there and we're like, they're the worst, I'm better than them, so I'm good. Right before Jesus had told this parable of the fig tree, he, some people had come and told him about an unspeakable atrocity. Some Galileans had come down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and somehow wound up dead. And Pilate mixed, just as a cruel, nasty mockery, he mixed their blood together with the blood of the animals they sacrificed. Just an unspeakable evil. And Jesus knows that when we hear about things like this, the spirit of Job's friends arises in our hearts and says, what did they do to deserve that? Surely they deserved it. They had to have done something wrong. Only people who are really bad suffer like that. So, so what did they do? That's how Jesus responds. Do you think that these Galileans were worse than all the others? Or the folks on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Do you think they were worse than all the other people in Jerusalem? And you'd think Jesus is going to give some kind of, no, 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 no one deserves stuff like that. It just happens. Or God's got myster- mysterious ways. No, no. He, he's far more painful and direct. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's not that those people didn't deserve their death. It's that all of you deserve death equally. And unless you realize that, you're missing the point of the story. You're missing the point of the tragedy, which is that you will not make it out of this alive. You are under the curse of death because you are a sinner. And if you fail to realize that, you're actually still on that way to death. Unless you can say, I'm the sinner who has fallen under the curse of death, fallen short of God's righteousness, and I am just as deserving as death as any other human then you're actually on this path towards death. And Jesus is calling them to repent, that is, to turn. To turn from one kingdom to another. To turn from the kingdom where they are the judges of who's righteous and who's not. To turn to his kingdom, where he is the judge. Where he is the judge who has actually given himself and given his life for the sake of those who are guilty. So though all are equally guilty, all get to be equally forgiven. Because in his kingdom, in his kingdom... What makes you alive doesn't come from you. It comes from God. It comes as a promise. And when it comes as a promise, it actually makes you alive and changes you and shapes you like Jesus. And so Jesus is calling the hearers of his parable then and now to turn away from one kingdom and turn towards another. To turn away from the idolatry and presumption, from the bitterness and the anger and the grumbling and the resentment and the self-victimization and trust that Jesus really is king and he holds the future. And therefore, he tells us how to walk into that future. And that means turning away from whatever definition of happiness or right that we've clung to in opposition to him and trusting him to have spoken the truth to us. 
Because Jesus summons us to turn from one kingdom to another, to the kingdom of him who is Lord of heaven and earth, and submit to his judgment on our lives. Forgiven. Forgiven new creatures. New creatures. He rose from the dead to give us that new future. He was crucified to pay off what we owed and to conquer our enemy. And in rising, he gave us his spirit. And that spirit lives in us, directing our steps, directing our desires, giving us new wills that can actually call Jesus Lord and can actually follow him. Not perfectly, not without fault, but can actually do it. And this is hard. It's hard because this is talking to Christians, people who know themselves and believe themselves to be Christians. And it invites each one of us today to ask, where am I just holding out? When I think about it, I think about the people that I'm angry with, that I want to get even with, that I just want to at least have my say. I want to at least get my day in court, right? And I cling to that. And it burns within me. And unless I hear Jesus say, you are not more righteous than them. You deserve death just like they do. Let me take care of that. Then I am headed down a path that's going to lead to my death. And so Jesus calls me and he calls you to ask, what is it in your life that you are holding on to? What is the sense of victimhood and, and, and wrongedness that you are using to justify you doing what you want to do? What is the idol or the desire that you've been clinging to that you think will make you happy that Jesus has told you is actually going to kill you? What are the people that you like to think are so much worse than you so that you can feel on the in crowd? So this parable, to bring it back to this parable, it puts all this before us. It takes everything we talked about last week, all that hard conversation about self-examination and repentance, and it adds this one word, or these, this one sentence. Don't wait. Do it now. Stop thinking that you have a whole bunch of time you don't know how long the year is that gets to be for your fig tree. That year could be your drive home, an hour. It could be a week. It could be a year. It could be a decade or two. But you don't know, and you do know, that you don't have forever. And the fact that you can hear me right now means that God has granted you at least one more chance for one of his servants to dig up your roots and throw another smelly sermon at you. Don't miss it. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have summoned us to yourself. You've summoned us with the sweet promises of an inheritance in a world that is free from sin and death and violence. And by these promises, you have told us that that world is making its way into us and through us into this present moment. We thank you for the sweetness of this promise. And we pray that by this same spirit that you have given to us, you open our hearts to the ways in which we are holding on to this present evil age and refusing to turn towards yours. Open our hearts to the people that we resent. Open our hearts and our minds to the idols to which we cling. Open our minds to the victory of Jesus and his cross and resurrection. That we might be his people, fully and completely belonging to him, and bearing the fruit of repentance by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. 
That's www.emmauspasco.org.